If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Some families were born into. Some families are made from the ones we meet along the way. Our families are built on love and traditions, the memories we share, and knowing that life is better because we're together. Pure Life, 100% pure quality water, refreshing every moment together. Visit purelifewater.com and discover where to buy Pure Life. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Crimean War of 1853 to 1856 saw an alliance led by Britain and France challenge Russian expansion. But why did the conflict break out? What were its major battles? And can it really be described as the first modern war? Well, in this three-part series, historian Andrew Lambert is tackling the big questions about the Crimean War. In this first episode... Andrew guides Rachel Dinning through the origins of the war and considers whether its build-up can be called a 19th century Cold War. In this first episode of our Big Questions series, me and Andrew Lambert are going to be delving deeper into the reasons behind the Crimean War of the 1850s and exactly why Britain and France allied themselves with the Ottomans against Russia. We're going to look at the build-up to the conflict and set the scene for the battles that we will be discussing more in-depth in episode two. So, Andrew, to kick us off with a broad question um, and for context, what was the Crimean War and who were the key players involved in it? The Crimean War is the common phrase we use to describe a very large conflict. On one side, we have the Imperial Russian Empire, and on the other, we have the Ottoman Turkish Empire, the French Empire, the British Empire, and latterly, Sardinia Piedmont, which is one of the constituent states of the future Italy, 
uh, which comes into the war about halfway through. The war is about the future of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Turkey at that point rules over an empire that stretches all the way through Arabia, Iraq, down into Egypt, uh, up into the southern Balkans, uh, almost as far as modern Romania. Uh, and it's been under pressure from Imperial Russia for the previous 150 years. The Russians have slowly been pushing the Ottomans back towards Istanbul. Uh, in the 1780s, they seized the Crimea from uh, Ottoman clients, the, the Crimean Tatars. So it's part of a long-running struggle between a rising Russia and a relatively declining Ottoman Empire. The British are involved because the Ottomans are very important trade partners, but they're also very anxious to keep the Russians out of the Mediterranean, which means holding the Turks in place at Istanbul. The French are involved because they've just changed their political regime. They now have a new empire, and the emperor, Louis Napoleon III, wants to appear on the stage of the international world and make France look good, uh, which may have echoes with contemporary events involving French leaders. The crisis begins not in the Crimea or indeed in Turkey. It begins in the holy places in Palestine with a dispute between Roman Catholic and Orthodox Greek monks about who should place their emblems in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There is then a serious riot on the streets of Bethlehem and men of faith are killed by other men of faith using religious instruments as their weapons. Uh, the Turks think this is absurd, but the Russians then demand a protectorate. The French demand a protectorate over these places. And so the protectors of Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity are on the verge of war over who should bully the Turks most uh, about something the Turks care very little about. The British are involved not because of the religious issue, but because if this issue of the future of Turkey is opened, it will have implications for the British. The British want this to go away. They want the Russians and the French to stop bullying the Ottoman Empire, and they want to negotiate a settlement. This doesn't happen. The Russians refuse to back down. They seize Ottoman territory, essentially what is now modern-day Romania, and they demand that the Turks make major concessions, which would have undermined the integrity of the Ottoman Empire. Eventually, the Ottomans get bored waiting for something to happen, so they start the war in October 1853. They cross the Danube and attack the Russians. The British and the French join the war in March 1854 uh, at a time which they choose to suit their own strategic agendas. So it's a war that takes a long time to start. It involves a massive European diplomatic crisis uh, which fails to resolve the issues and it exposes the very different agendas of all of the powers taking part in it. This isn't a simple conflict. Everybody is in this war for something quite different. My next question is going to be about Britain and Russia in particular and their relationship. Um, because if we go back all the way to 1850, when Napoleon was defeated and the Napoleonic Wars, uh, Britain and Russia were really the two dynamic powers in the global system. Um, what were the specific factors from this point that led to rising tension between these two countries? Anglo-Russian relations became difficult roughly at the time when Peter the Great acquired control of part of the Baltic coast and began to interfere in trades that the British were interested in, particularly the trade in naval stores, which are vital to building and maintaining wooden sailing ships 
on which, of course, Britain's power and Britain's economic activity absolutely depend. As an expansive power, Russia is constantly threatening to upset the, the European balance, to start new wars, to cause pressures beyond its own borders. So the British would really like the Russians to sit still and be quiet for a while uh, and allow the economy to progress. And the second problem is that wherever the Russians extend their empire, they close the market to British trade. So in the case of what we call the Crimean War, had the Russians taken over the Ottoman Empire, the entire trade of the region would have been taken away from the British and put under control by the Russians. So there's an economic rivalry, there's a strategic rivalry. And that strategic rivalry begins the moment Napoleon is defeated. Because it's quite clear that Britain and Russia are the two powers that have done the most to win this war in very different ways. And that any balance of power in the future of Europe and the maintenance of, of a balance of power will depend on their cooperation. But they're very different agendas economically, politically. Britain is an increasingly progressive liberal democracy. Russia is an autocratic empire which does not have any, any form of popular representation. And Russia is pressing at a number of points where the British are interested. There's a threat to gain naval bases in Norway. They're marching towards India, which is Britain's major imperial possession. And crises over Afghanistan will litter the 19th century as Russian troops approach, the British have to find ways of restraining Russia. So Russia is a dynamic, aggressive military power which is seeking territory and restrictive trade control over large regions of the world. Britain is seeking a much more open relationship in which it can compete for trade with other economic powers. So it's ideological, uh, it's intellectual. The Russians see the world differently. They see British values as alarming. They connect them up with the French Revolution. Any kind of liberalism in the eyes of the Russian Tsar is, is a threat to his position. So it's an existential rivalry which manages to be balanced for much of the 19th century by the reality that France is an even more unstable threat to the international order. And the British and the Russians agree that they have to keep the French quiet. And the irony of the Crimean War is that the Tsar manages to create an alliance between Britain and France, which is almost unthinkable. So he really has played his cards remarkably badly. Uh, the arrogance of the Tsar means that the British eventually have to accept that France is the obvious partner to work with in preserving the Ottoman Empire. And I'm curious for your take on the question, can the, the build-up to the Crimean War be described as a 19th century Cold War? Could we use that kind of terminology here? Yes, I've, I quite happily use that term because it, it gives that sense that it's a very long process, that there are ideological and economic elements as well as purely strategic that it stretches far beyond the obvious points of contact. Of course, Britain has no frontiers with Russia. It's nowhere near Russia, and Russia is not going to come anywhere near Britain. The idea of the Russians invading Britain in the 19th century is laughable. But that doesn't mean Russia isn't a serious threat to Britain's fundamental security and economic interests. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The case is different. The British can invade Russia, but they can't do much when they land on the beach because their army is so small, if they march inland, it will disappear. And the the British do understand that the 1812 campaign proves the point that nobody can invade and overthrow the Russian state with military force. So the Cold War is waged by the British as a limited economic struggle, not as a full-on military conflict. Uh, And in the Crimean War, we're going to see an awful lot of economic warfare being used to attack what is Russia's weakest point, which is its domestic economy. And you've touched on this point already, but the Crimean War was about global influence and economic power, as you've said, but it was also tied to the declining Ottoman Empire. And I'm curious, why did Britain want to back the Ottomans? British support for the Ottoman Empire is driven by the fact that the threat is coming from Russia. But more more existentially, if the Ottoman Empire collapses, there will be a major war in, in Central and Eastern Europe. It will almost certainly involve Austria on one side, Russia on the other, possibly the other German powers joining in. The French will come in for some part of the Ottoman Empire, possibly Egypt. Uh, the British, who don't want to rule any of this territory but do want to trade with it, will find themselves excluded from everywhere or they will be forced to become a conventional imperial power, conquering territory and holding it. So if we go back to the creation of independent Greece in the 1820s, the great powers managed not to fall out over Greece by creating a fully independent sovereign state, which didn't belong to any of them, and agreeing that none of them would take territory from the Ottomans as a result of this war. The Russians, of course, broke that agreement and waged an independent war on the Ottomans and did take territory from them, uh, and that had to be resolved diplomatically. 
so the, the ultimate answer to all of this is that the terrestrial ambitions of Russia to conquer territory, to extend its rule, to expand its power base is a constant threat to British interests around the world. Britain would like the world to stop changing. That's not going to happen. So it's using its diplomacy and its power to try and restrict Russia's movement, Russia's advances, and where possible, build coalitions, either political or economic uh, or strategic, to restrain Russia. But in 1840, it was the French trying to upset the Ottoman Empire, the British and the Russians combined, to prevent them. So the only difference between 1840 and 1854 is whose flag the British are saluting and whose flag they're firing at. And again, you've mentioned this a little bit already, but as well as uh, Russian expansionist ambitions, um, religious tensions had a part to play in the build-up to the war. Um, so can you tell us about um, some specific incidences that contributed in the re religious field? The religious issue ends up becoming very important to the Tsar. Nicholas I is a very straight up and down, autocratic, hardline Russian nationalist, imperialist, and he is, of course, an Orthodox Christian. So for him, Russian nationalism and Orthodox Christianity are the bedrocks of his power and his self-identity. Uh, and we see echoes of this in the current uh, leader of the Russian Federation, uh, who is a great admirer of Nicholas I, it has to be said. So the religious issue and the cultural issues are all bound up together. This is part of the package. The Russians aren't advancing on one front. They're advancing with their own unique perspective on the world. In the 19th century, the so-called holy places, Palestine, uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, are increasingly open to Christian pilgrims. Most of these pilgrims are Orthodox. They are Russians and Greeks. The Greeks recognize the Tsar as their protector when they're outside Greece on the basis of faith. The Catholic pilgrims recognize the head of state of France as their obvious protector, as the French are the only major Catholic power with the, the ability to intervene in the Middle East. Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte plays on this when he becomes emperor because he wants the right-wing conservative elements in France, who tend to be the most Catholic, to back his regime. So we've got two regimes that rely on right-wing ideology linked to a particular faith. The Orthodox outnumber the Catholics quite heavily, but the French put pressure on the Turks to make concessions to the Catholic interest. The Turks then make the same concessions to the Russians because, in all honesty, they don't care which bunch of infidels are praying in which bit of uh, real estate. Um, it's not their faith, and they, they're really not much engaged. So both sides think the Turks have promised them something special, when, of course, the Turks have promised neither of them anything. And then they escalate this crisis. So we go from monks fighting in the streets of Jerusalem and Bethlehem to battleships sailing up to Istanbul. And the French send their first steam-powered battleship, this brand-new technology, up to Istanbul. And it's not accidental. The ship is called the Charlemagne, uh, in memory of the man who stopped the Muslim invasion of Europe. So th this is quite a potent demonstration of power. So faith is wrapped into this. This isn't a war about faith, but it certainly has a faith element in its beginning. Uh, but by the middle of 1853, the faith thing has faded off. It's, it's, it's good old-fashioned power politics by then. And I'm curious, perhaps in Britain, how was 
the build-up to the war being told to the public? Were they aware that we were about on the brink of war? What kind of relationship with the media was there at this time? The domestic media in Britain is interesting because when the crisis starts, everybody thinks the French have started it. Uh, that's kind of natural assumption in the, in Britain that the French are responsible for most of the things that, that happen like this. But quickly, British politicians realise that it really is the Russians driving this crisis. And more importantly, the Russians can invade and overthrow the Ottoman Empire by land, by sea. The French do not have the power to do that. So working with the French is a better guarantee of keeping the Ottoman Empire in one piece. Most people in Britain have a low opinion of the French emperor and an even lower opinion of the Russian emperor. So there's, it's not as if we're picking sides. It's These are both regimes that the British public have been taught to despise or have some kind of contempt for. If you check the cartoons in Punch, which is a, a very good weather vane of, of British opinion, both of them are ridiculed uh, in really quite unpleasant ways, much as Napoleon I had been ridiculed by, by the British media. Uh, the Tsar is, is portrayed as, as a laughable figure, uh, and Louis Napoleon III equally so, but in, in a different format. So the British public are not surprised that these unpleasant, slightly odd foreigners are causing trouble and they just expect that Britain will have to go and resolve this. This is, after all, an age in which the British think everything is possible and that they are the greatest power on earth. It's only two years after the Great Exhibition has celebrated Britain's economic power, its industrial skill. Um, so it, it's a golden age uh, of British power, and, of course, the British will be able to sort this out. That makes sense. It was quite supported when they eventually did go into war. Yes, the war was, was relatively popular when it begins. It becomes less popular when the cost of it starts to come home. And the great disadvantage of a liberal democracy with a free press is that the information gets out pretty quickly. Uh, and the Crimea takes over as the locus of attention, not because it's the most important part of the war, but because it's the part where everybody dies. So it's death and suffering that co that create the idea of a Crimean war. It's not the strategy of the war itself. And we're definitely going to get into a bit of that in episode two of this series. Um, but as we wrap up this initial episode, looking just at the years preceding the war, um, what would you say, if you had to pick one thing as the tipping point that really kick-started the conflict, what would that be for you? The Russian occupation of the Danubian principalities, essentially modern Romania, um, a Russian army invades the sovereign territory of another major power in the region and, and holds that territory as a guarantee that the Turkish Empire will concede what the Russians demand. You know, they're holding a hostage. This is the kind of thing that brigands do. It's, um, it's a mafia trick. You know, I've got your granny, give me the money or else. Um, Nicholas is now keen to get this resolved. He's a relatively aged man. He's in his 60s, but he's not going to live very long. He's keen to get this done. So he abandons diplomacy, which isn't working. He abandons the usual procedures. He throws his army across the river into these provinces, seizes them and says, I'm going to keep these until you do as I tell you. Nobody in the international community supports him. Not even the Prussians, who at that stage were very much on side. His wife is a Prussian. You know, he's he's very close to the Prussian court, but even the Prussians don't back him on this one. He's crossed the line here, 
and he's too proud, too stiff, and too arrogant to step back. And that's the only thing that would have prevented the war. He had to back down, and he was not prepared to lose face by backing down because autocratic emperors cannot afford to lose face. And we're looking at that in the 2023 season as well. Thanks very much for giving us this very comprehensive overview of the build-up to the war, Andrew, um, and the motives of those involved. Is there anything you think we've missed that's worth explaining that helps explain the origins of the conflict at all? The one thing that I would throw into the mix is the role of the British in trying to deter the conflict. So there's a diplomatic merry-go-round going on to try and find a negotiated settlement in which everybody can leave the table thinking they've won something. From the beginning, the British realised that power will be needed. The first thoughts of the British Foreign Secretary is to send the Navy into the Baltic to threaten St. Petersburg, Russian capital. They don't do that. Instead, they send the fleet uh, into the Aegean to back up Turkey. Had they sent the fleet into the Baltic in the spring of 1853, it's likely the Russians would have understood the message and, and backed away before they invaded the Danubian principalities. So a failure to act quickly and to use the obvious British deterrent, the threat of naval attack and economic warfare, gave the Russians just enough space in which to get themselves in a really unpleasant muddle and not be able to back down. So deterrence is a really important part of this. And the failure of that deterrent idea in the Baltic in May 1853 is a tipping point. That's interesting. So there was a small moment where it could potentially have been avoided had different actions been taken. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, so in the next episode, we'll be looking at the story of the war itself, looking at the battles that shaped the Crimean War, as well as the military strategy that led the allied forces of Britain, France and the Ottomans to victory. So do make sure to tune back in for that next week. You are listening to Professor Andrew Lambert in conversation with Rachel Dinning. If you'd like to expand your knowledge of the Crimean War, then head over to historyextra.com forward slash Crimean War, where you can find a whole host of content, including a comprehensive guide to the war, a timeline of the key moments, and an article written by Andrew on the Crimean War's legacy. And after you've swatted up on all of that, then take our Crimean War quiz to put your knowledge to the test. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.